Yo, where you at, G? I'm on G. Oluwa. Uwe to G. Yo, G. Ugoopi. Hey, G. Owe here. I'm in the studio. Studio. Welcome to Amp Stories Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Amp Stories Podcast Season 3. Today, we have a special guest. Of course, every day we got a special guest, or so every day is a delightful day. And so, special guest, are you ready to introduce yourself? Yes. Hey, everybody. My name is Anna Giftiapoku Adamin, but you can just call me Anna. Currently, a doctoral candidate now at Harvard Kennedy School, where I study policy and economics. Um, and I'm really interested in sort of understanding patterns of discrimination in the workplace and then intervening on them. And just empowering young people to stand up for themselves and also stand up for the causes that, you know, bring more attention to issues in minoritized communities. So thanks so much for having me on the program, Gloria. I'm really excited and let's do the conversation. Awesome. Of course. Any fun facts and other passions that you have? Yeah, um, I'm an avid television watcher. I watch a lot of TV. Um, so the most recent show that everyone's been talking about is Succession. I can attest it's a great show. It's really interesting. I think it's required watching. I think anybody who lives in the West should be watching this show to understand how like media and power and money work together to create sort of the ecosystem that we're living in. Um, but then I'm also a Marvel head. So I recently watched Across the Spider-Verse. Mm-hmm. 20 out of 10 stars. Excellent highly recommend yeah it just was really good the animation was good it took a long time you tell they really took care of like the process and there's a part of it that i think is animated by a 14 year old um so i just recommend it i'm probably gonna see it sometime again um i was trying to see it this week but you know time and life but it's really (laughs) really good Okay, cool. Nice. Wow. First of all, Succession, I'm going to write that down. Yeah. When I get some time, I'll, I'll, you know, try and watch it. That's on HBO? Yes, it is on HBO. Okay. Mm -hmm. We're not out here promoting them, though, by the way. They didn't sponsor us. This is is all, you know, out of just the love of the show and Marvel. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, Anna, I've known you for a very long time. Yeah. I don't even know. I feel like I should be calling you doctor right now, but it's okay. We're going to let I haven't earned that yet. yet. (laughs) We're going to let the the progress let it be, but I believe you already have it. So, if you you you. already have it, then that's it um, thank you i received I've that. you for so long and but people that are listening to this don't know you much so tell us about your childhood and how yeah. up and you embarking on being an adult now like how has it been for you give us from one to 27 wow 25, 30, <laughs> you know even tell us the future Go yeah ahead. that's great thank you so much for that question and again thank you so much for having me here so you know the reason why we know each other really well is because we both grew up in the same community even though we were in different places. So um, I'm also Ghanaian like Gloria, um, and we both grew up in the same sort of Christian religion, uh, mainly Seventh-day Adventism. So that just means we go to church on Saturday. We have another set of beliefs that are additional to what most Christians believe. Um, And so anyway, I I mainly grew up in Maryland, but I was born in Ghana. A lot of people don't know that. I was born in Tomasi. Um, But I immigrated like when I was maybe three months because my parents got what we call the visa lottery. So you put your name in the sort of visa system and 
sometimes they randomly select individuals to get full citizenship. And so my parents and our family were, you know, selected and happened to be selected the year I was born. So we moved to the state. Um, I lived in Minnesota for a little bit, moved to Maryland. And most people know that I'm from Maryland. I, I you know, claim Maryland, but I'm from the suburbs. So I can't really claim Baltimore <laughs> or DC. So I'm just like, yay for both. I think a lot of immigrant, you know, families can relate to this. Like usually when you come, you kind of have to start over, even if you were somewhat well off back in your home country. And so I think my parents are a bit more middle class in Ghana, but when they came here, they had to kind of restart financially. And so that kind of put us in a space where we were living in kind of low income neighborhoods, sliding rent neighborhoods, apartments. I think a lot of people, um, you know, might know that like an uncle or two that drives a taxi, right? So, you know, my parents didn't do that, but like custodian work and all that kind of stuff. And so the other thing too, really quickly is like a lot of Ghanaian in particular, Ghanaian immigrants in particular, they um, go into nursing, right? So both of my parents are nurses. Um, Talk about I'm it. I'm not. <laughs> I never wanted to do it. It seemed like mm -hmm. a lot of work um, that wasn't my calling or my ministry. Um, but that's all to say that like those environments placed me in what we would call Head Start. So Head Start, if those who don't know, is a government program for children of low income working families. And it's subsidized by the government, right? So meaning that like I got, got to attend school for free in addition to public school and I, my parents didn't have to pay for it. It just became a, like another extension of school so that my parents could work longer hours, etc. But what ended up happening after I graduated Head Start, I think is kind of the beginning of what people now know me for, which is a lot of work around equity, a lot of work around, you know, educational access and thinking about discrimination. And so I was um, selected out of the entire class that I graduated with to get a full ride to a local private school that was starting up in my county. And so that place me from being in a predominantly black classroom with black educators who kind of understood like my cultural lens, right? Like they understood the kind of world that I lived in, the kind of food that I ate to now going to school with very, very wealthy white children, right? Um, and dealing with their very, very wealthy parents. And so this idea of like, what's a cul-de-sac? I didn't know what that was until I went to this school, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times when we would watch shows on television, you would see people with backyard yards. I, I don't know. I like didn't know what that was. And I didn't know that that was real until I went to this school and I had like a play date with somebody. And I noticed, oh my gosh, all the things that I saw on television, they just it's had true. in their house, which is crazy, right? Mm -hmm. So these are sort of examples of things that kind of got me thinking about inequality at a very, very young age. Mm. And I would say that I kind of evolved in my thinking as I sort of grew up, right? Because after elementary school, I just went to wealthier and wider schools on scholarship um, that had even more resources and more opportunity. I remember going to a school with the grandson of um, the guy who invented the Sure microphone. So if you've ever been in a church and it says Sure, we know I Sure. <laughs> with like his grandson, uh, which is crazy, right? And you know, even thinking about like there was a kid in my class who rented the Raven Stadium for his bar mitzvah. Um, that was the first and last time I've wow. ever been in that stadium. But that's just the kind of wealth that like. I I kind of went to school and saw and then I came home to kind of my low income mostly black and brown neighborhood I went to church with people who didn't have a lot of money um, and were just making it by and so I kind of think I was trying to figure out like how do I oscillate between the like move between these two worlds and mm -hmm. and what kind of lessons can I take from both and so mm -hmm. that I would say has kind of set the foundation for the way 
I ask questions. A lot of times I'm a little provocative in the way I ask questions. You know, I'd be like, <laughs> why is that so racist, right? Like, you know, like, you know, I think that we should reconsider that, right? Um, but it also has emboldened me too, because, you know, a lot of times people ask me like, how are you so good at kind of navigating these very predominantly white spaces, these spaces with a lot of wealth and a lot of power and a lot of privilege? And I say it's because I went to school with their children for like 12 years. So like, I have a sense of what to expect because- you have to play that's exactly right. And so I think a lot of my responsibility now is like, okay, if I have this playbook, if I have this sort of hidden curriculum that I understand, how do mm -hmm. I make it as accessible as possible? And that's mm -hmm. really why I've been kind of transparent about my journey since college, right? Talking a little bit about like, you know, how I navigated academia or how I'm, how I'm navigating academia because now I'm a PhD student. But like mm -hmm. even thinking about like, what do you ask your professors or how do you approach, you know, study groups and find scholarships? And so I find myself a lot of times not only talking to people one-on-one -on -one, but also like using Twitter using Instagram using TikTok at times right to like answer questions about hey how do you navigate this really unfamiliar space how does someone actually get to Harvard right a lot of people think it's what's on paper it's not I think it partially what's on paper but it's a lot of can somebody within Harvard's ecosystem vouch for you they're only mm. going to listen to themselves, right? So when I say Harvard's ecosystem, I also mean like not just Harvard professors, but Harvard alum that have gone to other places that mm. can say, hey, like, oh, so-and-so professor, I worked with this student and they're really good and da-da-da-da-da. So it's a lot of relationships and you wouldn't know that because there's a million YouTube videos saying, here's how I got my 4.0 and da-da-da-da-da. It's like, that's not <laughs> real. <laughs> it's not real. And so I think mm -hmm. a lot of it is also just like making these spaces feel accessible, feel achievable, right? Like, I don't think anybody doesn't have it in them to do a PhD at Harvard. I think mm -hmm. it's just a matter of circumstance, opportunity, and access. And so a lot of it is like, if I can't like help on the circumstance and I can't help on the opportunity, I'm damn as well as going to have help at the access part. So right. I'll do my best to like provide resources, to provide tips, um, and to connect people whenever they need to be connected. But yeah. And so yeah, that, that's kind of evolved into me getting this PhD, which we can talk more about, but that's a little bit about my background. <laughs> wow. First off, you have been around the wealthy for how long? Sorry? Nobody written you a check? Oh, I'm dead. Mm? About what? About what? I said you've been around the wealthy for about 12 plus years now. Nobody has written you a check. We didn't call that. We, we, you know, oh! And I'm not saying no, they written me a check personally, but like okay. more so the organization that I co-founded mm -hmm. and other initiatives that I've been a part of. Yeah, for sure. I'm using those connections Good. to Good. raise some Good. money. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely like the point about you talking towards relationships and connecting yeah. and those things. Can you emphasize that a little bit more? Because yeah. I feel the younger generation upcoming, you know, that are also about to go to school and all these things mm -hmm. need to understand how important that is. Sometimes we're stuck in our cocoon and it's like oh right. no we don't need to make too many connections it's okay the friends that I have is good but we need to you know emphasize how important those things are so would you mind yeah you know, talking a bit about that absolutely so the way I, I think about this is a lot of times people will tell you to network they say mm -hmm. you know networking is really important getting on LinkedIn is really important like people need to know who you are they need to know what you're about what I have found is like the most lasting relationships and the relationships that have given me the most bang for my buck are relationships where I seek out 
relationship and not just opportunity. Does that make sense? So like, I think a lot of times people treat certain professional relationships or even like platonic and, you know, personal relationships very transactionally, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. you give me something, I give you something, we're done. But what I have found is like, people need to feel invested in you to invest in you, right? So like, they they need to feel like they're, that your fates are are intertwined. Mm -hmm. And so how you do is somehow reflective, reflected in, in how they do, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, I'll give you an example. There's somebody who, you know, supported the Sadie Collective sort of in its second year. And the Sadie Collective is a nonprofit I co-founded that brings more Black women and underrepresented minorities into economics and related fields. And so, you know, this person, white guy, rich, right? Like, we're talking like, he's got money. Mm-hmm. Um, when we first talked, it was like, oh, you know, I want to learn more about your organization. But I, I, you know, in the back of my head, I said, you know, I feel like this guy is going to be somebody who I need in my corner about five years from now. And at that time, mm. I think I was like 21 or 22. I'm 27 now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that same guy now supports me in other ways outside the Sadie Collective. I'm no longer in the leadership of the Sadie Collective, right? But I still get his support. I still get help from him when I need it, right? Advice from him when I need it. And that's all to say that, like, I could have gone into that relationship initially saying, like, okay, this is a wealthy guy. I just yep. need him to help me fundraise for this organization. And it's one and done. But mm-hmm. again, like, the investment in the relationship actually yielded dividends over time because I was more intent about how do I connect with this person versus what can I extract from this person? Right. And so right. for me, that has been kind of the guiding philosophy and how I sort of navigate life, right? Um, and I think it's also true in your personal personal life. I think a lot of times, you know, we both go to this thing called a youth camp. I haven't been in like a decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But back in the day, we used to go. Back, and, in, back in the day, it was great. It was great. Yep. Yes. And, you know, you would see a lot of people in their cliques, but I felt like, you know, individuals who didn't have a good time at the camp, or people who didn't go out of their comfort zone and meet new mm-hmm. people. Because the mm-hmm. reality is you just don't know who you can connect with until you right. leave your comfort like you know your right. comfort level and so in some ways we have to get comfortable with getting uncomfortable so that we can make deeper and and more a more wide array of connections that end up being beneficial to us in multiple ways right um not only just like professionally but personally spiritually emotionally mentally these are all things that still need to like kind of fuel us as we move through this life i agree i yeah. think my favorite phase is well phrase specifically is being uncomfortable being comfortable with being uncomfortable yeah that's not and- my quote but yeah. yeah it's not it's not you know it's a it's a it's the universal quote and I think I've been using that a lot lately um a lot of uncomfortable things have been happening in my life but I'm learning how to be comfortable with that and be grateful for the the period that I'm in and you know embarking on new journeys due to those situations that I'm currently in so appreciate that insight and so you did say something about the Sadie Collective right give us a little bit more about about that and also gear us towards your doctorate program a little bit more too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this actually it's great that you framed the question like that because they are related. Mm-hmm. So the Sadie Collective is named after Dr. Sadie Taren Mostel Alexander. So for anybody who's listening to this that is Greek, you might know that name because she was the first president of the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. She also was the first Black economist in the United States. And so mm-hmm. the idea was to honor her legacy by naming this organization that is geared to support Black women especially um, navigate economics and 
related fields. And so essentially what the organization does is it creates programming, resources, and community around economics related fields for Black women, underrepresented minorities, and the like. And so examples of this are, you know, there's an annual conference that happens every year in Washington, D.C., where hundreds of Black women especially come through. There's like job market fairs, there's Mm. opportunities to connect with other individuals. And what you end up finding out is that a lot of these Black women are the only in their department or in their job. And so when they come to a place like this, they really do find lasting relationships, friendships, Mm. um, partnerships that are able to get them to where they need to be. And so for example, like this season, several people applied to graduate school. They reached out to me, hey, Anna, you know, what do you think I should do about this? What, you know, and now they're all headed off to a PhD program or a master's program. And so the idea here is like, how do we empower you to be your best self? You don't have to choose a specific path to do that. And so we're going to provide you with resources to all the different paths that you can take. And then hopefully you choose the path that works best for you and find Mm -hmm. people along the way that can also support you as well. And so that's a little bit about what the Sadie Collective does and and how it relates to my own journey is like most immigrant children, I dabbled in medicine because that's a rite of passage. (laughs) I promise you, I did not. Not even a little bit. Shout out to you. (laughs) You're the strongest of us because I I voted, I, you know, I heard the the spiel, oh, you're smart. Mm -hmm. Why not medicine? Um, So I tried it. I hated it. Organic chemistry was the thing that took me out as those who study medicine know. And so I kind of went through a period in my college degree or my college trajectory where I had no idea what I wanted to do. As somebody who's a little bit, I say a little bit, I'm a lot of bit type A and needing like structure around my time. Being directionalist was a nightmare, right? Like not knowing where I was going, not knowing what I wanted to do. Um, And the best advice I got from somebody was to cancel the noise, right? So Mm. there's a lot of different people weighing in because a lot of people want to say that, hey, I helped so-and-so get there. Um, But you got to make a decision about, you know, what do you want to contribute? What do you want to bring to the table and how do you want to live the life that you set out to live and it was like a really hard conversation I had to have internally but it required me to change my major after some prayer and a little bit on a whim to math I had no plan of action after that I said I needed to change my major to math that's the next thing I need to do I don't know what this is going to look like and so I did that I was doing research at the time I started asking can I do some more mathy things some more stats related things like I don't even know what I'm even asking to do and then literally when I changed my major to math the president of my university called me into his office and said hey um we just got a huge grant for this thing called economics would you like to be a part of it I didn't know what he was talking about I said what is economics and so he directed me to one of my closest friends now my friend Brandon who was like yeah I'm using math to study like educational outcomes I was like how are you doing that like I thought math was like boring like you Mm -hmm. we all learn like mx plus b whatever like who cares about this right but he like showed me that there's like a very practical there's very practical ways that we can use math to improve our social conditions and people do it every day this thing called economics this thing called public policy and so eventually that led me to obviously co-founding the Sadie Collective and then it led me to first going to 
Harvard as a fellow where I was able to work with a professor and figure out like, hey, like, is this even something I want to do? At first I was like, oh no, like <laughs> this research thing is whack. It's too much work. Like you got all these personalities, everybody's rich and mm -hmm. annoying sometimes. Like, you know, like, and so that led me actually to diverge a little off this path that I was going on where I decided to go work in um, policy. I came back to DC virtually because it was COVID. Um, mm -hmm. And then I also worked um, virtually in corporate and I wanted to get a sense of like, okay, here are the skills that I know I possess. These are the different paths that I can take. Let's see what path resonates the most with me. And what mm -hmm. I found out was that, you know, working in corporate inspired a host of questions about access, about opportunity, about how race, gender, and class sort of intertwine to create barriers for people who look like us. And so how do I kind of use those questions in a way that can be helpful to the communities that I'm a part of and, mm -hmm. you know, helpful to the next generation kind of looking ahead and that led me to then say okay the only way I can really get these questions in the way that I want to is if I get the right training to answer these questions and so that's what eventually led me to apply to four schools which nobody does most people apply to like 10 to 15 schools oh, wow. in my field I said I'm not gonna apply anywhere I'm not gonna go I'm not going to Wisconsin, so I'm not applying there, period. Know, right. So, you know, I applied to these four or five schools, got my first rejection, got my second rejection with a note. The note was, at the time I, you know, was working on the Black Agenda and yeah. this book that I edited and, you know, a number of other things, like, activism-wise, we don't think you want to be, a, like, a serious researcher. That was the note. That was the I note? Tell you, I won't tell you what school it was, but it was a you top should. business school. Um, they know who they are. In time, top business? Was yeah. this Was this in Penn? I'm not going to say nothing. I'm just going to okay. say it was a top business school. And they did say that to me. And, wow. you know, then I got the rejection that I got that really hurt was a school out in California. Um, I won't say their name either. And I, I, I didn't apply there. Berkeley? But, um, I'm yeah. not going to answer the question. <laughs> but, but, you know, um, I remember when I got that last rejection and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to do this graduate school thing. The only school I had heard back from at the time was Harvard Kennedy School where I'm at now but I had no idea that they might have been interested I, I just got in a slew of rejections and I said look it's probably done and so I ended up emailing my recommenders I said hey guys appreciate you y'all right. were writing for me thank you it's an L we right. can move on now and that same week that I found out that I got into Harvard I got an offer on the hill for a job so Capitol Hill there was a there was a congresswoman who wanted to hire me I got an offer to interview for the job. I was most likely going to get it because she knew my work. And when I got the call from the unfamiliar number on like a random day, hey, you got in. Well, first, first and foremost, I screamed. Then my parents started screaming. We all started screaming. And then I had to send an email like, hey, I just got into Harvard. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go there, right? Um, <laughs> but that ultimately is kind of what funneled into my going to the PhD program. Mm -hmm. And since then, it's been a lot about figuring out the best way to serve the community that I'm trying to help, which is people who look like us, people in low-income communities, people who are even abroad, like by extension, they're affected by a lot of things that we're affected by just in a different way. So, you know, my PhD has now become more of like a, a tool, a catalyst to answer those types of questions um, and a way to also, you know, bring attention to the issues that I care about. Because the, the crazy thing is places like Harvard are like brand, right? So it's like, you know, slapping a Gucci or slapping like, a, you know, I can't say that word, Basiaga, you know, I can't say that word. Valencia. But, 
Balenciaga. <laughs> like one of them brands on you Mm -hmm. and once you are wearing it or once you kind of have it people start treating you different and so so it's like okay if you are going to be paying attention to me because of this harvard thing let me bring your attention to these black people who are suffering over here or let me bring your attention to these resources that need more funding um Mm -hmm. and it's been successful that has been an actually successful vehicle for for doing that kind of work so yeah now what a wonderful pathway like shout out to the president was it the president what do they call the chancellor president yeah president of the university yeah the university shout out to him because without that grant you would have never known about like economics so i really wouldn't have known to that and that's amazing like the sadie collection great work keep i hope that you know you're still in contact with them of course yeah absolutely they they're out me which is great yeah right letting them know they're doing good work and you're also doing good work too we can't wait to hear more about that because there's so many different things that are going on in the world and we need more attention on you know just equality in general yeah that is powerful you're using the brand to your best of your opinion i'm trying you're using it you're using it trying and so you did hint a little bit about the black agenda hmm. yeah. what is the black I'm agenda <laughs> tell me what the transitions are killing me is is neat yeah it's neat no let me stop let me yeah. stop no um, but yeah tell us about yeah, the black agenda. absolutely absolutely so before i apply to grad school y'all um I had this period when I left my fellowship and I wasn't working, right? And so mm-hmm. I had time on my hands. And this was coinciding with like the very like the height of the pandemic. So this is like March, April 2020. Um, and so I'm on Twitter. Like that's really what I was doing all day. Like I was on Twitter, kind of following the conversation, trying to understand what was going on. And I noticed something. I noticed that like you would watch the news, like CNN. MSNBC, even BBC, and you'd hear them talking about the pandemic, but you wouldn't hear about the ways in which the pandemic was affecting different communities, right? So you'd hear, mm-hmm. the pandemic is bad, but you, they wouldn't be going into detail about like, how bad is it? for certain communities. And then what was happening online on Twitter was you had all these black experts saying, we think this is going to really be bad for black communities. We think it's gonna be really bad for Latino communities, right? We need disaggregated data, meaning that we need the data to be broken up by not just like where you live, but by race and by gender and by class, like your socioeconomic status and you know even your proximity to like a grocery store or something right, like right. that, right? And so you had these kind of two parallel conversations happening And what was simultaneously happening is because I'm a bit visible in the space of economics, people were coming to me like, Anna, what's your two cents on this economic trend? What do you think? And I said, look, I'd love to give you my two cents. And I did. I gave a couple people my two cents. But then I said, this is this is ridiculous. Like, I'm not even in grad school yet. And Mm. there are seasoned economists that y'all should be going to. And I remember one reporter saying, well, we don't know where to look for them. And I said, ding, ding, ding. I have an idea. And so around that time is when I got signed by my wonderful um, literary agent, Leela. Um, and I, I told her, hey, I have an idea. It might be a long shot, but I think we can pull it off. And this is all pre-George Floyd's murder, pre-Brianna Taylor's murder. And I said, I think we need to bring like key black experts and activists and organizers into one book and then push it as far as we can push it. What I mean by that is like, people keep asking me about economic trends, we bring some black economists, right? Initially, that was what I was going to do. Only black economists and only black folks in the policy space in DC. But as time went on, I said, wait, we got to expand because this economic concept is connecting to this tech concept. This tech Mm -hmm. concept is, you know, talking about this health disparity. And these things are all intertwined. Like we have to find a way to bring these people all together. So we can't just focus 
focus on economic, we have to go into technology, we have to go into climate, we have to go into healthcare, education, what have you, criminal justice. Um, and then George Floyd was murdered. And then Breonna Taylor was murdered. And all of a sudden, it seemed like things had shifted in the discourse where you start, you start seeing like, people are like, oh, let's acknowledge Juneteenth and, you know, use Afrocentric marketing everywhere, right? Like in bad faith, of course, they're not, they don't really care. Like they're just not trying to get caught with their, you know, with their, mm -hmm. you know, pants below their legs or whatever. And so like, I think a lot of it was like, okay, like this is performative, but we can momentum of this moment to see if we can get a book deal and that's exactly what ended up happening so the black agenda ended up we ended up publishing with saint martin's which is like a subsidiary of mcmillan publishers so if you've ever had a textbook mm -hmm. yeah those are usually the publishers that do it and they also have like a separate imprint for books like the black agenda and fiction and stuff like that and so since then like the black agenda has been more of like a resource that both individuals in the black community but also people who really want to do the work are drawing on and i i always say like the, the big concept or the big overarching idea from the black agenda is that black people are human too right our humanity is questioned a lot it's contested constantly and there's no reason for it but the evidence is really really clear and so inviting all of these individuals you know telling them like look you just talking about this idea and not backing it up with anything is not going to be enough to convince somebody who reads this essay for the first time where's your data where's your evidence where are the stories that back up what you're trying to convey here and so that was sort of the charge that i gave each of the 35 experts that contributed and out of it we got 30 incredible essays that range from climate to education to tech to reparations that get at what we need to do um, not just for black people but for america so yeah oh wow <laughs> that's really unique so the structure of the book is not just like oh chapter one you know no. going on you can it's hop around Wow. Okay. Elaborate a little bit more on how it's outlined. Yeah. yeah. So basically, I didn't actually set out to create like the sections of the book. What I did was I, you know, approached the experts. I said, speak on what you know. And mm -hmm. that informed the themes of the book, right? So okay. at a certain point, we were able to get the 35 experts. I asked them to talk about it. And then from the essays that they provided, I said, wait, this all comes together in technology. This all comes together in mm -hmm. wellness. Um, and so the way it's structured, is that you know each chapter is a topic area in policy so we have wellness we have technology we have healthcare, um we have education things like that and i introduce i'm kind of like the mc of the book so i'm like you know kind of spinning the track letting you know what's coming up next mm -hmm. um and you don't have to read it in order you can say i want a little bit of health right now i want a little bit of technology mm -hmm. right now and that's completely totally fine because none of these things are written in chronological order but they are talking to one another so you'll see that people okay. in the tech chapter might be talking to people in the climate chapter and people in the climate chapter might be talking to people in the criminal justice chapter and so it ends up being this sort of like almost roundtable discussion between experts from different fields about kind of how do we move black people forward but how do we ensure that america moves forward alongside it how long did it take to actually cultivate <laughs> this collection so it took about a year and a half actually that's not bad that's not, not bad. bad it's not bad most books will take about two years to mm -hmm. put together mm -hmm. that's between you writing it and then you getting it published and then pushing it out for this one it was a little easy in the sense of like i just needed to get people to write 
and then mm-hmm. I edited and then we pushed it out. Um, the hardest part of this process was I had all these like academics in particular, like people who are professors and people who teach for a living. And they're like the language they use was not accessible. Had a feel. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was like, you're out here referring to this thing over there, like <laughs> only people in your field understand. But like, mm. my mom needs to be able to understand this sentence. Right. And so a lot of the challenges that I gave people were like, write this for a family member that is like aware of what you do, but they don't know the details. Right. So mm-hmm. like, you got to be clear about what you're doing and so there's certain essays that do it really really well and then there's other essays that I'm like this is the best we could do because like <laughs> it's just a little bit <laughs> it's a little bit up there and so you might mm-hmm. need a little bit of a translation guide to get you through mm-hmm. but yeah so in the book is there some type of translation guide and is there asterisks in there somewhere to be like oh this means that like yeah i think we have a little bit of that yeah and then i also think that it cites different articles so even if you don't fully understand what maybe something's referring to it's cited in the back of the Mm -hmm. essay so you can go back and say okay like let me look up this article and see what he was getting out or what she was getting out what they were getting at yeah well this sounds amazing i can't wait to get the book too do you have the book right now i don't have it on me right now okay Um, but i will say that i'm not sure when this is coming out but the paperback um comes out june 13th so the paperback is just like a cheaper version of the book it's Mm -hmm. more colorful it's like a summer theme Mm -hmm. um just to get people excited about it but yeah like i would say you know i encourage you all to get it it's a really really good book to get for juneteenth especially because it features so many black american experts who are pushing forward a lot of progress in their fields even speaking about those black american experts where did you find them so remember the reporter had said that they're having a hard time trying to find these people so how was it that you were able to find them but they well, that reporter was just lazy. That's that's just really what it was. So, I mean, I think it's like just a, a quick Google. You can find some of these people. But I think for me, I had the, um, it was more of like a communal kind of effort, okay. right? So I knew certain people that could speak on certain things. And I said, okay, I can reach out to those people. But a lot of times it would be a tweet. Hey, y'all, do y'all know any Black mm-hmm. epidemiologists? Do y'all know any Black nurses? Do you guys know any, you know, climate activists who are doing things in the Black space? You know, like things like that. And I felt like just asking I don't know, people who they know, who kind of inspire them and who kind of move them and allowing that to kind of organically inform who gets to be in the book. Um, and the, gra- the gag is, excuse me, that we reached out to like hundreds of individuals. Oh, wow. And so we were able to land on 35. Ideally, I would have had all these individuals in the book, but right. some people said no, because during that time, every black expert was in high demand. Um, but also, you know, the reality is too, we had like limited resources. So we weren't able to really pay for everybody. So everybody got paid for being in the book because mm-hmm. no labor is free labor right and so just making sure that like we're dignifying their work in that process we also had to mm-hmm. limit the number of people that we included what else was a part of the criteria in terms of picking those 35 people so i think the biggest thing is that like are you passionate about this subject you have a lot to say about it right um because i think you know i could talk about climate change sure but like that's not what i live and breathe and so mm-hmm. i don't think i'll be able to do it justice in a way that maybe somebody like abigail thomas who writes one of our chapters on sort of intersectional environmentalism and where she highlights like kind of how does race, gender, and class relate to the climate movement, climate change. Uh, She talks a little bit about how, you know, prisons, for example, about 500 prisons in the United States are built next to toxic landfills. So that Mm -hmm. means that, you know, if you think about inmates and folks who are incarcerated, if they have a small window in their cell, the only air they're breathing is toxic, right? So like, that's something that I I actually had never thought about before. And she brought that to my attention. I also wouldn't have known that even if I did a Google search. 
It's not right. something that's like widely known. So I think that was one of the biggest criteria is like, how much can you speak to this thing that we're trying to study, um, this thing that we're trying to convey? And, you know, how passionate are you about that? Um, but a lot of it was mainly that. I, I also didn't want to be restrictive on like who's considered an expert. I think a lot of mm-hmm. times there's gatekeeping around like you have to have a PhD, you have to go to a certain school, you have to have a certain degree. And I think it was really important to include younger voices that didn't have any of those things or people who were maybe a little older, but didn't have any of those criteria or maybe Mm -hmm. were more seasoned. Because I think there's a multi-generational conversation that needs to happen here around what this progress looked like. Because the gag is like a lot of the problems that we're seeing, we're going to be inheriting Mm-hmm. the ways in which we deal with those problems. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with the topic continuing to be gender, class, equity, you know, there's going to be those people out there like, oh, how is race related to climate? Oh, how is race related to tech? What do you tell those people? Yeah, I think a, a lot of times, you know, you hear these things on Twitter, even TikTok, right? Like y'all are pulling a race card. And the exactly. gag is like, we weren't the first one, right? So when you think about like the founding of this country, it was built on some premise of race, right? Like mm-hmm. slavery was a thing. I think we can all agree on that. Mass incarceration is a thing. I think we can all agree on that. Those things are deeply intertwined with how people look and what communities they're from, right? Mm-hmm. And so whether or not you think it's about race, this country thinks it's about race, right? Because, you know, even the people who wrote the, you know, Declaration of Independence and signed it owned slaves. So, you know, even if they were saying, you know, all men shall be created equal, they weren't talking about... Talking about, nope. Us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That has to do with race, right? Because mm-hmm. what would make us less deserving of the freedom that they're writing about nothing mm-hmm. so i think a lot of times when people kind of bring that argument out it's like i mean you can you can argue that but the facts are the facts right like at the end of the day if you've had like a 200 plus year head start because your family wasn't enslaved or your country wasn't disrupted by colonial powers you're pretty much ahead of the game it's it's like i'm trying to think of like a good analogy it's like being on your third lap of the track when i'm still trying to get out of my car like right let's be real right and so um when people have that kind of argument i'm just like look if you want to have a serious conversation we can have a serious conversation but if we don't agree on a set of facts this conversation is going nowhere i agree so even pinpointing on let's be real so that's right you know with current events right we're gonna hit that right now actually okay love it. current events you have Florida's governor, or what is he? Yeah. Governor, mayor, whatever he is. You do you have, it. yeah, you have him doing a lot. And then you have other states that I'm currently in, like Texas and then North Dakota, Tennessee, yeah. Yeah. all of these states, let's call them the red states, correct? Sure. So all these red states trying to clear out diversity, gender, equity, inclusion, all of that out of university curriculum. What are your thought process on that? And how do you think this is going to affect everyone maybe we'll start smaller in our little buckets first but overall how do you think it's going to affect other schools other states and just the knowledge that we're they're trying to throw away I mean, it's a it's an amazing question you're asking. And it's a question that we really don't have an answer to yet because we are kind of living through it. I can guess though, 
based off yeah. of <laughs> what we've seen in the past. One thing that's on the docket right now at the Supreme Court of the United States is whether or not affirmative action in college mm-hmm. admissions is constitutional. So what that means basically is like a lot of schools like Harvard that are super, super, super selective, if they were to go off of merit, and I'm putting merit in huge quotations because we know that at least 40% of the white students that get admitted to Harvard are not getting in off of merit, right? Like they're, they either have a parent that works as faculty at their mm-hmm. university, they're, they're either on the dean's list, meaning that they make so much money that they have a separate list to ensure that those individuals are satisfied. They're either athletes or, you know, like they're related to somebody on staff. Like there's, there's, there's like a group of people where that's true across all groups, but for white folks at Harvard in particular, college students, it's a high, high percentage, about 40%. Or their legacy. Legacy is the one that people love to forget, right? Meaning that their parents went to Harvard, therefore Mm -hmm. they can go to Harvard, just a little easier for, I say a little, but it's a lot easier for them to get in, right? Not saying they're not smart, I'm just saying. So there's that, it's on the docket right now. And what we know from the evidence, um, there's this economist called Zachary Bleemer. He kind of shows that like in California in the 90s, they actually did ban affirmative action for a hmm. period during the like I don't know when exactly I think it might have been late 90s but basically it was within the University of California system so in California you have like California State and then you have the University of California schools like UCLA UC Berkeley UC San Diego etc what they what he basically showed was that over time less minorities even apply to these schools. So knowing that affirmative Mm. action has been banned, people who look like you and I didn't even apply. And Mm. over time, because they weren't going to these schools and because, you know, this policy was deterring individuals from applying, they made less money over time. So their earnings declined. Yes. So Interesting. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. So, so that we can, let's backtrack. We need to, we need to break it down into increments. Yeah. So minorities weren't applying because affirmative action wasn't legislated within the college. Was banned. Yeah. Was banned. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so colleges started to lose money because what again? Oh, so what I'm saying is affirmative action was banned in California for a period. Mm -hmm. As a result, minority high school students who would have applied and got Mm -hmm. it in probably stopped applying. Stopped applying. Or like applied Mm -hmm. in lesser numbers. And over time, minorities who didn't, who could have gone there, but didn't, ended up making less money than minorities that actually went to those schools. So literally like banning affirmative action is bad for the economy, right? Because you want people to make a living wage so they can buy your products, they can support your businesses, mm-hmm. et cetera, right? And they can pay rent, right? Like things like this are really important because we need to live. Right. Um, affirmative action may have an outsized, and what I mean by outsized is like, it may have a broader effect on not just higher education, but the workplace itself, right? Mm-hmm. Because the kind of jobs that people get when they go to schools like UC Berkeley, when they go to schools like Harvard, are jobs that are making them money that might be, you know, help contributing towards generational wealth. What I mean by that is like your parents have money, your grandparents have money, and they can support you as somebody who is coming up with funds, right? So there's like a study that was featured in NPR that showed like the majority, like not the majority, but a good chunk of white Americans in particular mm-hmm. get money from their parents towards their living expenses, right? I remember when I found out that like there are graduate students in my school 
people that have their rent paid for by their parents. Are you kidding like, me? How? <laughs> like, be for real. Be for real. And I mm -hmm. was really mad about it because I was like, and then these same people will say, well, the rest of y'all should really pull yourself by your bootstraps. You, somebody put the boots on you. <laughs> and they're buying your shoes too. Like, be for real, right? So, I would say that's like one example of kind of this diverse, like war on diversity, right? Ron DeSantis is a person, not a fan of him personally. I want to be careful about the words I choose. Yes. But what I will say is like his policies are intentionally anti-Black, intentionally anti-LGBTQ+. He does not care about the humanity of everyone. He cares yeah. about the humanity of one group of people. And I would argue even within that group of people, it's probably one class. Right. Yep. Right? Yep. Yep. So I think that's the gag I always like to tell people who are especially like first generation whites, um, you know, people who are, you know, more low income or middle income that identify as white. Like none of these policies are helping you. Trust me, like you think that you really sticking it to the black person, but you're getting burned as well, right? <laughs> and so like, I just need you to put on your thinking cap and Listen. think like five years down the future mm -hmm. because the diversity programs that they're trying to root out at universities include first generation students. Guess who's also first generation? White American. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense why you would be gleefully cheering for an opportunity that, uh, sorry, for a policy that eliminates your ability to move up on the economic food chain because the reality is like as we what we know about the economy is the way that things are developing technology matters a whole lot there's this thing yeah. called skill bias technological change it's like a labor economics term and it's this idea that a lot of individuals are getting jobs that are more technologically aligned, meaning that like their jobs use things like AI. It's not going to be replaced by AI because they have the quote unquote higher skills that are kind of um, what we would say complementary to the technology revolution. Um, but what ends up happening is like you have people at the top who are benefiting from this and then you have clerical workers whose work can't really be replaced. So think about mm. your receptionist. Think about, you know, folks who maybe not note takers, but like people who are doing jobs that a robot can't do it just leaves everybody in the middle high and dry which where is where a lot of america especially middle america falls and so mm -hmm. things like mcnair which is like a, a, a diversity program at yeah. universities that gets more people into phd programs you know things like myroff's cause program which i did at the university of maryland baltimore county and now is being replicated in other universities like rooting these things out or eliminating the kind of support these students might receive includes white middle america America. And so it's just a really bad, in my opinion, a very bad long-term strategy. And it's going to set a lot of people up for failure. Um, and again, it's just kind of a, a, a backlash to what we are seeing with, you know, increased conversations about race relations in America, increased conversations about, you know, humanizing certain marginalized groups in America. This guy's just kind of on like a I don't yeah. know. He's on a he's on a mission. He's on a mission. And, and Texas and all the other some of the southern states are just falling in line. You know, they said Florida can do it, we can do it. Like, and that's mm -hmm. the fear, right? Like, he's setting a very dangerous precedent that could be replicated and refined elsewhere. And so that's why we have to kind of nick it in the butt. Mm -hmm. So how are we gonna nick it in the butt though? It's yeah, the it's a it's a because this question. this governor is also trying to run for president, right? And so yeah, I don't he think said. He's 
I'm going to start small and then boom, you know, widespread. So how are we going to nick it in the butt before he even reaches that type of level to presidency? Yeah. So the way elections work generally is that like you have primaries, meaning like in those elections, like those mini elections, they figure Mm -hmm. out who their main person is going to be voting. You have no hope for him (laughs) to to win primaries. Listen, (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of things going on in the Republican Party right now. Yeah. Something is giving doggy doggy world. I don't mm-hmm. know how they're gonna shake out because, you know, forty five is still very, very present in that party and he's got like a cult like following they love him so mm-hmm. i don't know i saw like the vice president is the former vice president is going to be running that's a oh, terrible pissed. idea yeah so I, I think it's a terrible idea they they low-key try to come for you bro so i don't really know yeah. what your long-term plan is there I, I think for us on the ground because a lot of these things feel super big and like yeah how do i yeah. even address this i would say voting is really really important people talk about it like it's not but like i think the way i explained it once on instagram was like you're voting so you get another chance to vote. That's kind of where we're at right now, right? So you might not like Biden, but I promise you Biden is going to give you another election to vote for. I don't know about the other guys. <laughs> I really don't. Like, I don't know if, if they get to power, point. they're going to be like, elections, we're done with them. Like, and yeah. the thing is, you just don't want it to get there. And so I hear the grumbling. I hear the mumbling. Like, I think it's all fair. I don't agree with everything that happens. Most of us don't agree with everything that happens. It's fine. But I think the reality of the matter is we're at a critical point in history where Mm. the integrity of whether or not you actually get to decide is on the ballot. So Mm. you have to vote for the person who is going to give you another decision to make. And to me, that's the current president of the United States. That's President Biden, right? And the gag is he has done some good things, right? So I think Mm -hmm. that like we can't erase the fact that, you know, under him, like the economy is actually booming. The unemployment rate gap between black people and white people is closing majorly right it's like almost gone which is crazy like it's like a historic feat so there are some really good things we can take away from this and say okay there's potential here he probably needs to listen to black people a little bit more right he probably <laughs> needs to listen to latino people a little bit more um but we're at least going to get another election right in office for another four years and i think that that is like almost all, like at this point for me it's like a guiding ethos like if i want my local leaders and my state leaders to feel empowered in their jobs i got to elect a boss that's going to give them the ability to feel that way and electing somebody who is effectively going to take away elections maybe ban black people from existing you know like let's be real like that is right now so i think voting is one of those things i think the other thing too is supporting things that are on the ground grassroots organizations that i mean are busting their butt to ensure that like your life is not endangered by some of these policies that are just flying around right voting rights for example was just on the block for the supreme court thankfully they went in a way that was really great alabama was trying to redraw the map where they put all the black cities in one district that they could always get the majority like that was the reason they did it and the supreme court surprisingly said no which is great we love to see that but the idea here is like there are grassroots organizations that are behind these efforts they're placing pressure on these political bodies these politicians these powerful individuals you you think that like going out to protest or you coming for you know so-and-so racist leader is not doing anything trust me it is doing something Mm. because if that person trends for the wrong reason 
it then becomes, mm. we got to rethink our strategy. We got to make sure that we're not pushing it too hard, right? The whole conversation around abortion, I know my, people might have different views on it, but a lot of sort of the pressure of supporting re reproductive rights is coming from people on the ground and they're yeah. placing a lot of pressure on this administration to get things done. And when you have somebody in your ear like that, that can also go around, you know, turn around and tell the rest of the world, this administration is not doing this or this leader is not doing this, right? It, it makes you feel empowered. It makes you feel like, okay, like my voice really does matter. Like if I tweet something or if I share something or if I go out to protest something or even if I donate something, it is actually moving the needle in some way. It might be like by a micro centimeter, but if we are all moving it at that same level, it's going to move. And so that's kind of, I would say the two big things, like supporting grassroots effort, mm -hmm. voting, and then always staying educated. Don't be caught in these Twitter streets looking ignorant. I'll be seeing some tweets. I need people to read Please. <laughs> you can't be on the internet interwebs talking mm -hmm. about so-and-so policies about how, you know, Biden just wants to get the alien. What are you talking about? Like, mm -hmm. read a book. If you can't read, no problem. Audio books are available. There are people who are willing to talk to you about it if that is like an intimidating subject. But I think that the, the most important thing in all of this is knowledge. Knowledge is power. If you know, they mm -hmm. can't fool you. They can't confuse you. And they can't trick you with something that you already know very well yourself. And so, especially for Black people, you got to know what's coming up on the docket in terms yeah. of these policies because like I said before our humanity is contested mm. people are still arguing about whether or not you know we should even be fully seen as voting citizens that is a question of our humanity so you can't be lackadaisically you know oh mm -hmm. it's whatever like no you at least remain like at the surface check the news you know once a day maybe once a once a week just get a roundup of like how are these things affecting my communities and how is it affecting me and that way you are informed when you go to the polls that that way you're informed about the things you can support and things that you feel moved by that's it <laughs> so you said to also like check the news, but what's another way to get more in depth on policy? I think once you listen, the news can be a lot. It's just a lot of noise sometimes yeah. and they're repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. So what if you just want to focus on, hey, I want to know about policy. Where do I That's go right. and look for that? That's right. So selfishly, um, I'm going to plug the Black Agenda. <laughs> Please do. Right. So the Black Agenda is, you know, a book that summarizes a bunch of policy solutions, right? So mm -hmm. different ways of tackling problems that we're all familiar with, but it also gives some rooted evidence-based um, kind of context, right? So if you knew the numbers around criminal justice, you would be appalled, right? Essentially, it's illegal to be Black in America. That is what the numbers yeah. are telling us, right? So having that knowledge is really, really helpful because then you can advocate for yourself. You can push to place local leaders in office that are also going to advocate for you. And if you mm. think I'm lying, look at Chicago. Chicago just like elected their most progressive mayor ever. Mm -hmm. teacher, right? Shout out to teachers, by the way. We love teachers, right? So we like this was a grassroots effort. People in the city oftentimes are really plugged into understanding how their city's policies affect their, their their lives. And a lot of that comes from if it's not, you know, going to the news, like, you know, going to the news, maybe going to a, a local conversation where they're bringing up issues in your neighborhood, right? And just getting a pulse of like, what is happening and why? And how does that affect me? And how does that relate to things that like are in this bigger sphere? Because um, I think at the end of the day, 
you know, you can look at CNN, you can look at MSNBC, you can even look at Fox News, and everything feels bigger than you. Mm. Like, it feels overwhelming almost. But the gag is there are things you can do right where you are where you can learn about how do the politics even move within my block, right? Like, yeah. is there like a, like a you know, a neighborhood watch? How is that mm. policing certain people, right? Like, you can ask questions in your Facebook groups if you're still on Facebook. You can ask questions to your friends who might be living in the same apartment building as you or whatever. Like, these are things that are within your reach and you should feel empowered to do because you are a citizen in the in this country and you're entitled to ask questions and to form opinions based off of the information that you receive. That is super helpful. I'm going to take some of your advice today because Yay! I'm not going to lie. I don't watch the news. It's stressful, but I do read. I do like news articles. So I'll take that, but I need to be more invested in my, in my city and like inside of my community to just yeah. see what's going on. So thank you for the advice. We're almost at time. We didn't even take a break today. That's okay. Cause That's this, fine. this was too powerful to, to cut. So it was too thank powerful you. to cut. So my last question to you is what's currently igniting this fire even more and how can we ignite other people's little flames? Cause I have like a little flame too, you know, but like, how do you just light it up? to to be more inspirational and have more motivation and a vision for this pathway of just being more equal as a people because to think that because the color of my skin is different from somebody else I'm half of a person is mind-blowing I think for me the biggest thing is talking to young people that is how I stay inspired and ignited I think a lot of times people don't talk to young people enough and young people include mm. people who you are younger than you especially children especially like teenagers because the reality is the world that we're building is for them yeah. whatever world that we build people are going to die people are going to pass away and ultimately they are going to be the ones who inherit and live in the world that we have built and so a lot of what I do especially around advocacy and activism is like I always say this I'm studying racism so you don't have to right mm. I really want to understand patterns of discrimination so so you don't have to navigate those patterns. I want to make it so hard for people to use your identity, the one that you were born with, the one that you choose against you so that you would feel empowered to do other things that make the world a better place. Because right now, when you look at young people, they're just trying to survive, right? Yeah. The climate crisis is about survival. The economy is about survival. These book bans are about survival. They just want to survive, but they should really be living. They should really be thriving. I think everybody's entitled to that. And so for me, young people keep me connected. Conversations like this keep me connected and inspired because I think that it's important to be honest and, and vulnerable about our journeys and about the things that we're learning, the things that we're unlearning to really move things forward. These are just like a couple of the things that really kind of keep me going. God, of course, keeps me going. My support mm-hmm. system keeps me going. You, you need people who are in your corner, who see you beyond what other people see, right? I think a lot of times, yeah. you know, I'm at a place in my life right now, and I think you can attest to this too, where sometimes people look at me and what they see is, you know, she's at Harvard, she's doing this book thing, da 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 da, da. Sometimes you just need somebody to see you as you. Listen. And be able to, you know, jump with you and talk with you and Listen. not really see you as this thing to be extracted from or networked mm-hmm. with, right? It's, it's really important for us to also reclaim our own humanity by being intentional about who we surround ourselves with and how we spend our time. 
time. And so I choose to surround myself with people who, who love me, who make me laugh and who inspire me. And I also choose to invest time in communities, especially with young people mm-hmm. who I think are the future and who ought to be empowered to do good by the rest of us. And so mm-hmm. that's really kind of what keeps me going. Wonderful. Wonderful. What an honor. I see you, by the way. I see you. you. And not just with your accomplishments and all these different things. I see you as a person with all the grace. So I truly appreciate you being here today and talking to us about this. This is a topic that we got to keep bringing up all the time. It's really, really important. We should not just throw it under the bridge, you know? So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you. All right, y'all. That's it.